Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. The Southern Poverty Law Center is suing the Georgia Department of Labor, alleging unprocessed unemployment claims and failure to address appeals during this pandemic. Coming up, we'll hear from one of the attorneys who says this means the Department of Labor is violating state law. Also, the PATH Foundation is celebrating what the organization cites as 30 years and 300 miles of green spaces and trails. We'll have that conversation coming up. But first this, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp says the lawsuit from the Department of Justice is, quote, legally and unconstitutionally dead wrong. The U.S. Department of Justice is suing the state over recent changes to Georgia's voting laws. Now, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland says the changes were enacted to, quote, deny the rights of black Georgians to vote and therefore is in violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Now, while in Savannah last Friday, Governor Kemp charged Democrats are at the core of the DOJ's lawsuit. Their false and baseless accusations are quite honestly disgusting. But I can't say that I'm surprised. The president and his administration Stacey Abrams and their far-left allies have lied about the Election Integrity Act from the beginning. Kemp went on to say he looks forward to defending Georgia's voting law, and he's, quote, not scared of U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland, President Joe Biden, or Stacey Abrams. In related voting news, state lawmakers have set locations for public hearings regarding redrawing the state's election districts. The General Assembly must redraw the district every 10 years to balance population changes. A special session is expected this fall in advance of the 2022 elections. And lawmakers will meet Monday at the state capitol, Tuesday at South Forsyth High School in Cumming, and Wednesday at Dalton State College in Dalton. All hearings begin at 5 p.m. and residents can submit testimony and watch the hearings online. Also, Governor Brian Kemp has earmarked $10 million in federal funds to reimburse families of students with special needs. Now, this money is for expenses parents incurred during the pandemic. Many educators and parents agree students with special needs were especially affected, mostly due to disruption in their school routines. Now, parents can apply for the reimbursements through the Georgia Department of Education's website. And finally. Middleton played by Gallinari. Middleton with the jumper. Yes. And came back particularly strong in the fourth quarter. So the Bucks follow up their blowout win at home in Milwaukee. The Atlanta Hawks will need a win tomorrow night in order to even their NBA Eastern Conference Championship Series against the Milwaukee Bucks. Despite playing in front of a home crowd, the Hawks lost last night, 113-102. But the big news coming out of the game is this. It's the overall health of Hawks star guard Trey Young, who sprained his right ankle. Game four is tomorrow night at State Farm Arena. 
You're listening to Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. As always, I'm Rose Scott. As mentioned earlier, the Georgia Department of Labor is being sued by the Southern Poverty Law Center through a local law firm. Now filed in Fulton County Superior Court, the lawsuit charges, quote, in the midst of the largest unemployment catastrophe in recent memory, the Georgia Department of Labor has repeatedly failed to follow the law governing the payment of unemployment benefits, close quote. In a statement to Closer Look, Labor Commissioner Mark Butler said this, quote, This is obviously another politically motivated lawsuit. Just like previous lawsuits, we expect to prove that this suit does not have merit. These groups believe that unemployment insurance should be paid to everyone who applies, regardless of their qualifications. The same groups should be more concerned with helping people go back to work in one of the hundreds of thousands of jobs currently available across the state of Georgia Close quote. Well, joining me now is Emily Early, Senior Supervising Staff Attorney for the Southern Poverty Law Center's Economic Justice Project. Counselor Early, thank you for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's begin here. Your response to Labor Commissioner Mark Butler's statement and what I just said. I first would like to clarify that this lawsuit is not intended to pay unemployment benefits to every single unemployed Georgian. The lawsuit is intended to enforce Commissioner Butler's duty to promptly not only pay benefits to those whom the Georgia Department of Labor has already deemed eligible, mm-hmm. but to respond to people's claims for unemployment insurance benefit, meaning there are hundreds, if not thousands, we could guess, individuals who have applied for unemployment insurance benefits, but have yet to receive what is called an initial claims examiner determination, which tells someone whether they're eligible. The department itself, Commissioner Butler specifically, has not complied with his duty under Georgia law that expressly says that individuals are to receive or to be issued those initial determinations promptly. There are also individuals who have filed for uh, appeals in administrative hearings Mm -hmm. and appeal hearings to be more specific and have not received those hearings. And so we, we would like to first start off by saying we're not asking for unemployment insurance benefits to be paid to everyone, but for the system to operate as it was intended to promptly pay those benefits to determine folks eligibility and to issue those hearings. Otherwise, the system does not work. Secondarily, yes, there have been other lawsuits filed against the Department of Labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, once those lawsuits were filed, uh, the department did what the lawsuits were actually seeking, which is to take those actions I just spoke of, spoke of earlier. And this is a class action lawsuit, correct? That is correct. Now, the plaintiffs are Georgians who have not received unemployment benefits or have yet to receive any notification of their status. I want to be clear, that's exactly some of the claims here, correct? That is correct, as well as individuals who have filed appeals and are awaiting hearings. You know, you all are citing a specific time period, and let me back up. Are you all citing a specific time period dating back to when the state temporarily shut down, leading up to now, or is a specific time period that you all are alleging that the Department of Labor is not processing claims or even given status notification updates? We are seeking relief on behalf of three individual classes, those three buckets of folks I spoke spoke of earlier. Mm-hmm. And those folks who fall into those three different buckets who have been waiting for 
whether it's it's payment, whether it's the determination or whether it's an appeal, if those folks have been waiting for more than four weeks, then those folks would fall within our proposed classes. But yes, we are we are seeking relief for <laughs> individuals who have been waiting uh, since even last year. And, you know, and, and I want to stress for our listeners to understand, because at the time of this complaint that it was filed, you all estimated 400,000 Georgians currently receiving benefits and approximately 180,000 who had yet to have their applications reviewed. This was going back to March of 2021. You all were able to get that information through the Department of Labor? Yes, there is data that the each state Department of Labor is required to report to the U.S. Department of Labor. And so this is data that either we ourselves have, have analyzed that is publicly reported or data that uh, other individuals such as the Georgia uh, the Georgia uh, Institute for uh, Public Budgets. I'm messing up the, the name of the, the institute. But oh, the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute? Yes, thank you. I had a, a word uh, snuffle there. That's yes, okay. That's it happens to me all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and we should note, Labor Commissioner Mark Butler has appeared on this program several times before to address complaints about unemployment benefits related to the pandemic and a backlog. I want to go back to the last time he was on this program. Here's Commissioner Butler back on March 16th of this year, and he responded to the same allegations as in the lawsuit. Take a listen. You know, you hear a lot of these accusations are not actually based upon any fact or any kind of actual you know, numbers to back it up. But when you look at all the states uh, in America, and this is come from this came from an actual U.S. DOL publication uh, back in February, uh, we were 22nd uh, in the nation as far as timeliness of paying claims in that 14 uh, to 21 days. And there is no state in front of us that did as many claims and is as large as we are. And that was pandemic related or just overall. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and so we were we were the top top rated state of our size and there's nobody even like the the state closest to us mm-hmm. and size wise that was ahead of us did over a million fewer claims than we did now that is mark butler georgia's labor commissioner back in march of this year attorney early in the complaint you all actually cite that georgia fails in comparison to other states to properly process unemployment applications first of all you all are basing that information on what That data is based on, as cited in our complaint from U.S. Department of Labor data, there are several different measures of uh, timeliness that are reported to the U.S. Department of Labor by Georgia Department of Labor. And those are not only the initial processing of claims, but also the delays and as, or excuse me, the appeal hearing delays. Mm -hmm. You'll see in our complaint, Georgia in the last quarter of 2020 had an average uh, age of 207 17.8 days to process appeals and the acceptable level of uh, measure is 30 days or less. So I wouldn't even look so much at uh, how entirely, I mean, surely how Georgia ranks uh, with other states is one measure, but Mm -hmm. if we're looking at the number of days that folks are waiting uh, and in large groups of numbers, that also tells a story that the department is not doing its job. The stories that we were receiving, I literally have 50 emails over the weekend from folks uh, who are still experiencing delays and have filed these appeals last year. So I, I want to point out too that whatever data that the commissioner is saying 
uh, is being reported to the U.S. Department of Labor as some measure of compliance with, with federal guidelines does not mean that the department is doing its job under its promptness standards under Georgia law. Again, people stories people tell the, the reality, uh, you know, in our minds of, of what, uh, how the department is falling short of its duty. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Emily Early. She's a senior supervising staff attorney for the Southern Poverty Law Center's Economic Justice Project, and we're discussing the class action lawsuit filed against Georgia's Department of Labor. And Attorney Early, in the complaint, you all referenced that you looked at the Department of Labor's own social media pages to support the claims in this lawsuit. That is correct, yes. Uh, We've looked at the social media pages on Twitter as well as Facebook, Going back to even March, April of last year, if you scan those social media pages, you will see, I mean, I have not recently counted myself, but my bet would be, or guess would be that you would count hundreds of folks who are complaining about not even receiving a response to their emails, to their phone calls, noting how the rest of Georgia has been open, yet none of the career centers throughout the state are open. The headquarters of the Georgia Department of Labor is not open. People cannot get appointments with the Georgia Department of Labor. So if, if I mean, I do encourage everyone to, even if you are not personally being affected by these delays, to go to those social media pages. And just, just to get a, one small taste of what mm-hmm. uh, folks are still experiencing 15 months into the pandemic. You told me moments ago that just over this weekend you all received or you received 50 email emails from folks complaining with the same issues that you all are raising, that either they have not had a status notification or they just haven't received an unemployment benefits at all. That is correct. I And that's just my, my best guess, but uh, we did actually set up an email address where folks can report their stories of delay in order to, we want to amplify these folks' stories, um, you know, even aside from the lawsuit and be able to tell the story that these folks have been trying to tell themselves to their own uh Department of Labor to Governor Kemp to their state and federal representatives with no response. Um, so, I mean, my guess since we filed the lawsuit, I mean, we probably have received close to 100 uh, emails or phone calls from people who are desperate for help. Some people who fall into those three buckets uh, mm-hmm. that I just clear, or some folks who had received payments and their payments were cut off, notwithstanding uh, communication from the Department of Labor that they were entitled to benefits through uh, a, a latter date, a date that has not yet passed. And as you know, in a court of law, if you're going to if you're going to challenge something, you have to obviously be able to have proof. As for proving the Georgia Department of Labor is violating law, what Georgia statute will you all present to the court that they are in violation of? There is uh, Georgia has an employment security law under which the Department of Labor commissioners duty of promptness is uh, regulated, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't have the statute right in front of me off the top of my head, but it is the employment security law that expressly uh, says this particular policy that Georgia supports its own public policy of the benefit of uh, unemployment insurance and that it is to not only support a worker and his or her family during times of economic distress, but also to shore up the economy. Mm-hmm. Having unemployment insurance not only helps individual families, it helps our economy. If people do not have these benefits, then they will lose their housing potentially, the ability to feed themselves and their family, the ability even to get to work to continue to be able to pay their bills. Um, so it's the Georgia policy is very clear, as is the law um, under, yeah, the Georgia Employment Security Law. And we also are suing under the federal constitution, the 14th Amendment specifically, 
uh, alleging that individuals also have a protected entitlement under this state promptless law uh, that has that they've been deprived of uh, as a result of the lack of proper procedure uh, implemented by the Georgia Department of Labor and Commissioner Butler. And I'm curious, Counselor, did you all, prior to filing the lawsuit, did you seek to have a conversation with uh, Commissioner Mark Butler to try to resolve all this or get some answers? So we have in, in, a, in a couple of different forms. So initially uh, we filed a lawsuit. So th this lawsuit, this class action is, bought, is brought with our co-counsel at Bondurant, Mixon and Elmore, mm -hmm. previously brought an individual lawsuit uh, seeking what's called a writ of mandamus to compel the Department of Labor and Commissioner Butler to comply with these Georgia promptness provisions. Before filing that lawsuit, uh, which we brought with counsel at Atlanta Legal Aid Society and Georgia Legal Services Program, uh, those particular partners, the legal aid organizations, had been in contact with uh, Governor Kemp as well as Commissioner Butler and did not get a response or the response that they were hoping for. I actually understand, if memory serves me correctly, that they initially did not receive any response and then it took another nudge to receive a response from uh, the attorney general's office. Mm. After about this mandamus lawsuit in January on behalf of six individual petitioners, we did speak with someone in the uh, attorney general's office. Um, and again, that was after we filed, uh, but there did not seem to be much willingness to resolve this on uh, a systemic level and mm -hmm. that we to resolve some individuals' claims uh, just simply beyond the bounds of the lawsuit. So we feel at this point, given <laughs> the, the media coverage uh, that's been going on of this delay issue for months and months and months, we need to file a lawsuit in order to get this systemic relief that people are so desperate for. And you all are asking the court for a lot here. You're asking the court for first what you call a trial by jury on each issue. So triable for someone listening. They says, OK, well, I'm reading the lawsuit and you all have a lot here. You're also seeking declaratory judgment. Yes. Now, yes, go ahead. Well, yes, we are. So we're seeking what is called equitable relief, which is non-monetary relief, if I could be that, I guess, basic. But yes, we're seeking both equitable relief and, and monetary damages. So equitable relief includes an injunction to get the Department of Labor and Commissioner Butler to do its job under both federal and state law. And then the declaratory relief is to is seeking to uh, request a declaration or a statement that the defendants we have sued here are violating the Georgia employment security law as well as federal due process. I'm curious, have you, to your knowledge, have you all been successful in suing other agencies or departments in the state of Georgia? My specific, so I'm with our Economic Justice Project mm -hmm. in, in Georgia, but we do, as part of our practice group's work, seek to uh, reform systems across the board, uh, governmental agencies, or even in some, to some extent, private agencies that partner with uh, governmental or state agencies. So yes, we have not specifically in Georgia with my practice group. Mm -hmm. um, this is this would be for our practice group, um, you know, initial for foray into I, our own backyard, if you will, for Southern Poverty Law Center here in Georgia. And you know, the extra three hundred dollars of federal unemployment claims that's ending or has come to an end here in, in Georgia for so many folks um, who were either lost their job or for whatever reason, you know, was is impacted by the COVID-19. Uh, how optimistic are you all that given that, coupled with these allegations here, that the court will 
see it your way and, and feel that you all have proved have enough proof here to get these judgments. Well, of course, only the <laughs> the the uh, judgment in in the case um, will tell us. I mean, I think that you know our one of our number one goals, of course, is to expose uh, what is happening at the Georgia Department of Labor and tell folks stories. Uh, I think that you know we're we're very optimistic in that these claims have also been brought in other states against other state departments of labor that have resulted in positive judgments, uh, either on a class-wide or an individual basis, uh, or settlements, even with, with Virginia, for example, and now in, in Louisiana. So I, we believe we're optimistic, and if anything, we've been able to successfully tell the story of what we believe are hundreds, if not thousands, of folks who are in dire straits right now and, and are desperately, desperately seeking even a response at minimum from their so-called public servants. So you're saying at least that would be the, the least that the Georgia Department of Labor could do to address uh, these complaints. And, and, and listen, to be fair, we, you know, we've had the Commissioner Butler on the program before. We've actually read emails and Facebook and, and Twitter, you know, comments from listeners. So we definitely know that there has been a lot of allegations. Emily Early, Senior Supervising Staff Attorney for the Southern Poverty Law Center's Economic Justice Project. And we've been discussing a lawsuit filed on behalf of Georgians against the Department of Labor, alleging failure to follow the law governing the payment of unemployment benefits. Emily, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it, Counselor. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to speak with you today. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. And a programming note, many of you are emailing and reaching out to us regarding the last segment as related to the Georgia Department of Labor being sued by the Southern Poverty Law Center. And a programming note, as always, we did reach out to Georgia Department of Labor Commissioner Mark Butler, who has in the past been on this program. We will continue to try and get the commissioner on to address your concerns. So, but always continue to reach out rose at wabe.org or hit me up on Twitter as you all love to do wabe at wabe rose scott. Now, on to our next segment 30 years and 300 miles. That's what the Path Foundation is celebrating here in 2021. If you're not familiar with the mission of the Path Foundation, well, the mission reads as this pretty simple to transform Metro Atlanta into the most trail connected city in the U.S share knowledge and experience with other communities to promote trail development. Well, it's been quite a journey, no pun intended, for the organization. And joining me now to talk more about the PATH Foundation is Greta, I hope I said this right, Greta DeMaio, the executive director of the PATH Foundation. Greta, did I get your name correct? Welcome to the program. You did. Thank you, Rose. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I want to begin with a confession. I was going to save it till the end of the program. During the pandemic, I discovered the Lionel Hampton Trail. 
And I didn't want to tell anybody about it because I didn't want folks to start coming on the trail because I wanted it all to myself. I love that trail. Uh, One of our engineers, Kevin Rinker, you know, he rides a bike. He's always up and down that. I really enjoyed it. But now I've told all of of the world that the Lionel Hampton Trail is Rose Scott's favorite trail. So expect to see thousands of, if not millions of people on the trail right now. Right. And that was one of our very first trails that were built. Um, PATH is a nonprofit. We've been building Atlanta's trail system for 30 years. Mm-hmm. And it's just great to see all the pieces that have been coming together uh, throughout the years to what we have today and are enjoying. Let's back up a little bit because sometimes a good idea springs up from an unlikely moment. Tell the listeners how the PATH Foundation was started. I believe three friends were out on a bike ride back in 1991. They were um, Pete Pellegrini and and Maxine Rock and Ed McBrayer are the founders of the nonprofit. And Pete and Ed had just moved back to the Atlanta area from living out in Colorado, and they really had become avid bicyclists out there, found themselves uh, talking to other bikers in Atlanta who recommended going from uh, downtown to Stone Mountain and then going around the Stone Mountain Trail. And lo and behold, that put them right on Ponce de Leon and and right against all of the truck traffic. And they realized we need trails. And so that was the beginning. Well, if there's any street in the Atlanta area that will quickly remind you that you need trails, it's it's Ponce de Leon. Um, And the original mission is pretty much the same, as I mentioned, coming to the segment, Greta. It is. Uh, We've been working for the past 30 years, uh, connecting and inspiring communities of all races and nationalities and social economic kind of statuses by creating this conduit of trail systems for Metro Atlanta, um, you know, delivering healthier lifestyles and high quality of life. Mm -hmm. And so we're really working towards having Atlanta, the most trail-connected city in the country. You are a registered landscape architect. When you assess the Atlanta region as a whole, which I guess could include just Atlanta proper, or if you even want to go outside to some of the other counties, how would you assess the number and and the quality of paths and trails in the, in this Atlanta region? Well, I think we've just begun. Um, you know, throughout the state of Georgia um, in the Southeast Path has built 300 miles of trails. Uh, within Atlanta, that number is, is closer to approaching 70 miles. And so to date, uh, we understand that we have to continue supporting trails and getting local funding to be able to fill the gaps that are still there. So, um, you know, the Lionel Hampton Trail is a good example. We've been working to connect it back into the Beltline Mm -hmm. with the Southwest Beltline Connector. But even right now, we want to extend that down to John A. White Park Mm -hmm. and even further to Adams Park. So there's there's lots of moving pieces and lots of opportunities. We just um, continue to do as many as we can every year. Do you think, Greta, the general public is aware of the many trails and paths in this Atlanta region? I don't think so. And I think the pandemic, like you said, Rose, really had people seeking trails and just for mental and physical health. 
And so uh, we recently launched on our website, if you go to pathfoundation.org, better trail mapping. Mm -hmm. And so anyone who is wondering, okay, I've, I've been on that trail, but I'd love to know where more trails are in the Atlanta area, just go to our website and, and you can see all the opportunities that are there to go out and just enjoy all of Paths trails. And we should note it's, it's all free, which is the great thing about exactly. it. Exactly. Did you all discover more folks exploring the outdoors? Now you just talked about me and, and yes, I admit it, there are more folks were exploring the outdoors due to the pandemic. And is that, are you seeing that, that continue? How do you all sort of measure you know, the, who's using the, the trails and, and, and I know you can't do a count, but how do you all gauge that? You know, it's really, you know, we build the trails for the whole community. And so it's really their voice when they reach out and they tell us, you know, thank you. We really are enjoying, um, you know, we went on this trail. We got an email today. Someone rode the Silver Comet Trail all the way to Anniston, Alabama, did an overnight and came back. And so it's just, it's great to hear from the trail users. That's the way we kind of gauge. Anytime we're out there, you know, just on our own trails, seeing people enjoy it. Um, We are only three full-time staff. So we're, we're building trails and we don't always have the time to go out and put counters or really uh, see how many people are using it on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. But from everything we hear, we know that um, they are well used and more are needed. Well, let's back up a little bit, because when you are referring to when we're building trails for our listeners, take us take them through that process of how long it can take from someone saying, hey, you know what, I wish there was a trail over here or you all see a trail that could be connected to whether it's the Beltline or some other pathway. What's that process like and how long does it take? Like how long did it take for Lionel Hampton to get from conception to opening? You know, I would say the Lionel Hampton, it was not, it was not state or federal money that funded it. It was local um, city of Atlanta funding partnered with private dollars that the PATH Foundation brought to the project. And that really is the best model at quickly getting a trail from the very beginning to the very end built. And so usually that time frame would be two years. Mm-hmm. And so you can compare, we recently opened the Westside Beltline Connector and I had a colleague send me a picture of where they had been standing on the property that was the abandoned rail corridor. And it was the end of 2018. Mm. And so that just goes to show we, we completed that trail uh, kind of the end of 2020, opened it at the beginning of this year. And so it was two years to get that to happen. And the Lionel Hampton Trail, since we're using that as an example here, as the model, I mean, there are, there's residential neighborhoods all around. What's right. that process like in, in also making sure you have their input? And I imagine maybe sometimes when you have the concept, it's hard for someone to, to, to see it, see the vision. Uh, did it take a lot of uh, convincing? Did it take a long time to get the community and the neighbors to understand what, what it would look like in the end? At the very beginning when PATH started in the early 90s, um, it was hard to understand what is a trail. 
And so all the public meetings, we typically had to do a lot of just handholding and explaining the benefits of trails and what an amenity this was gonna bring to the community. So we fast forward 30 years and now we have such great examples. Um, most of our public meetings, the majority of those who are attending and that we're in, engaging with, with the projects that we're moving forward and building, they, they know what a trail is now. Uh, they're excited about that. And then we just work hand in hand with adjacent property owners with what concerns they might have and how to really directly address that. If you're just joining us, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott, and we're talking about the PATH Foundation with the executive director of the foundation, Greta DeMaio. Now, let me ask you this, because with the Lionel Hampton Trail, I know who Lionel Hampton is, and I love Lionel Hampton, uh, but I imagine there is a, a connection here as to why it's called the Lionel Hampton Trail. Yes, he, he actually, if, if I've got the history right, he was a critical part of, of donating the property that was was needed to make the trail happen. And so our archives have the pictures of the founding members and, and Lionel himself at the grand opening of mm. the trail and just was a, a really great partnership in, in having him as part of that project. And that's a great uh, segue into this next uh, part of our conversation, Greta, because often on this program, we discuss equity and diversity threads as it relates to pretty much every topic. But what's your viewpoint on making sure you have access to these paths and trails throughout Metro Atlanta for everyone? Right. Well, you know, over the 30 years, um, you know, we've really connected communities of all races, nationalities, and socioeconomic uh, statuses. And, you know, trails to us are a conduit that delivers equitable access to healthier lifestyles and higher quality of life. And so we're, we're not limited in any way. We're looking for opportunities for quality trails that anybody would be comfortable, no matter what your age is or your ability also. And being able to find these remnant green spaces throughout the city to really have inviting opportunities for all to be able to get out of their car uh, to be able to have connections to homes and schools and, and places of employment and businesses. So that's why I keep saying we've just begun in a sense. I think there's anyone would want to have the opportunity to be able to get from point A to point B. And, you know, not everybody has a car. Mm -hmm. So being able to do that on a trail, I think, is just a quality a way of getting people around the city. And you mentioned that there was no federal or state dollars. I want to be very clear. There were no federal or state dollars used for the Lionel Hampton Trail. Is that pretty much the case for all of your, your funding, uh, you know, revenue that comes in? That's what we like. Uh, doesn't mean it's always the case. We, we have throughout the 30 years worked with federal dollars. Um, Rose, the thing is, it just, it takes so much longer mm -hmm. because it goes through a process that has the oversight of the Department of Transportation. 
and it really ends up um, having a little bit of additional cost to utilize federal dollars. So we are always trying to get the local support of the city. And a lot of that has come through the years as TSPLOST funded projects. And to us, that is a great opportunity to have local dollars coming to match our private dollars and getting trails to happen. Well, we've had so many conversations and it's an ongoing conversation because transit and mobility is really one of the tenets of the topics that we talk about here on Closer Look. Do you sometimes think that maybe trails get they get lost in that whole conversation about, you know, options when it comes to transit and mobility and also how they can improve one's quality of life? I do, because I think they're they're what we would consider kind of low hanging fruit in that conversation. Uh, Transit is a very complicated uh, topic. And even with technology changing, I think human powered mobility is always going to be what it is today. Even with e-bikes, we see a lot of e-bikes now emerging. Um, Scooters. Scooters, (laughs) right, right. But but trails can accommodate all of those modes. And really, um, when looking at funding, is just a really good return on investment. Um, the way that PATH designs trails, we're targeting 60% of the population really grabbing a hold and using our trails. In designing those trails and wanting to help develop those trails, obviously, you know, sustainability is an issue there. Who do you all bring in to help? I mean, obviously, because there there might be some cases where some trees have to come down in the lane of some concrete. So how do you balance that, Greta? Right. Our, our design team um, goes through all the regulations that are required in designing the trails. Uh, if we are within like the state stream buffer, which a lot of times green space that is not buildable, that can accommodate trails becomes adjacent to kind of our riverways. And so we go through every process that any normal project would go through. And so we meet all the requirements, the state and local requirements for design and engineering. Has there ever been a trail idea? And you you may not want to mention the neighborhood because I'll get an angry email and I don't want you to get one. But (laughs) has there ever been a trail concept or idea that you all wanted and it just you were met with sort of not my backyard type mentality? I think they call them NIMBYs. I don't know if that's a nice thing to call somebody or not, but... I said well, it. I, I think it's pretty standard now. Um, everybody knows, yeah, NIMBY is not in my backyard. And, um, you know, really the the support that we get from, you know, just the community in general has shifted over the years. But we definitely have our, our stories and our arsenal of, of past experiences and and some very unique um you know, to the point where we had belly dancers come out and people, you know, chained to trees to, uh, yeah, we've, we've got, had a lot of stories. I, I don't, the, the chain to trees, I get the belly dancers. I don't. Um, right. It was to get the news. Is that a sign of protest? <laughs> right. Okay. Right. So. Well, that was a very polite way of saying that y'all tell 
But, okay, so when you get some opposition, you all listen. You're not, you just don't dismiss folks' concerns because you want to be fair, right? We do. We do. And, and we, we try our best to be able to be um, a resource if anybody wants to reach out, ask us any questions, um, you know, and, and be able to, you know, provide the best, you know, responses that we can. And, and, and to be fair, you know, because obviously there are concerns pretty much for, for older trees, too, as well. I mean, a few, a few years back on this program, we spoke to a woman who had climbed a tree that she did not want. Well, she was she was representing a group that did not want Georgia Power to cut down this tree. So we definitely understand that. Um, mm-hmm. The Path Foundation is celebrating 30 years and 300 miles. And in honor, you're asking folks to take this path 30 years anniversary challenge. What's this all about? And does this mean I have to do it now because I'm part of it? Because, you know, I am the host here and I try to be part of the community. Well, I would hope that you would. It just really, all you have to do is go to our website and just, uh, you know, register with your name and your email. Uh, We do have a weekly drawing you, you don't have to commit to um, 30 to 300 miles. It really is just bringing everybody together, supporting PATH, acknowledging our 30th year. And the great thing is really, if you love our trails though, you can uh, really gauge your activity during the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also look at the opportunities. We've got some um kind of curated rides so you can go to our website and if you want to try out a new ride that has been put together by you know a trail user who loves our trails Mm -hmm. you can look at the different opportunities to do that too. Greta I just received an email from someone who says they have a um, they have a young person with some uh, physical disabilities but can still uh, is very mobile um, is there a path that you want to, a trail you want to recommend for this individual or if someone is, is wheelchair bound or, or just has some mobility concerns here? Right. I think any of our trails, um, you know, we design our trails to meet um, Americans with disabilities uh, requirements and having it as a hard surface trail, I think really makes it easier, definitely for those who are in wheelchairs um, so any of the trails, of course, the West Side Beltline Connector that we just opened, I mm-hmm. love that trail. If they want to go to our website and find it, if they're, um, you know, on the south side of town, they can go to our South Town Trail. They can go out to Lionel Ham- Hampton, like you were talking about. Um, they can go to the Freedom Parkway, kind of the downtown to Stone Mountain portion mm-hmm. of trail. So uh, I would just encourage them to go to our website and look at all the opportunities and find the one that's closest to them. And by the way, that PATH 30 Years Anniversary Challenge, so from starting from Memorial Day a while ago through Labor Day, they're inviting you to walk, roll, run, or ride any distance from 30 to 300 miles to a ch- for a chance to win a PATH, some type of swag bag. And you know what? I have not talked to anybody here and basically my bosses, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, you know what, I'm going to pick a weekend and invite all of Atlanta to meet me on a trail, and we're just going to walk. Right. <laughs> of course, someone great. in marketing is going, Rose, don't do that. But 
you know. Oh, let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. Now, as yeah. we as we wrap up, Greta, it may be difficult to answer, but do you have a favorite trail? Do I have a favorite trail? Yes. I do think the West Side Beltline Connector, I, you know, it's almost like your babies. You, you know, your latest one is kind <laughs> of so dear to your heart. But um, yeah, West Side Beltline Connector is just a beautiful uh, trail in, you know, downtown, you know, west side of downtown and just amazing how you can feel comfortable but separated from the roadways. So, and you all just had a new trail opening in Henry County, true? We did. That was the the extension from Panola Mountain State Park, and it's the Panola Mountain Greenway. And so it's a beautiful trail, too. Wonderful Greenway Trail. Now, there's some animals out there we can, I love animals. Are there animals out there we could see? I know probably deer. Now, if there's some bears, Greta, I, I, you need to let me know because I can't. No, but every now and then you might see a snake, but at least oh, on cool a snakes. hard surface trail, <laughs> you'll you'll spot him way ahead of time. So. And finally, Greta, as we as we do wrap up, finally with the Beltline, when that because you all were well ahead of the Beltline, and when that came online, did you see it as competition, or did you see it as okay, this can be a complementary to what you all had already been doing for so many years? It really was complimentary. And so we've partnered throughout the years with Beltline. We have a really strong partnership in, in working together with them. And so, you know, we always say the best project is a collaborative effort. And uh, we, we enjoy working with the Beltline and, and uh, we're working towards accomplishing the Beltline trail completion by 2030. You think that's gonna happen, Greta? Cause everyone says it will. I do. I do. I think we've got the right team in place to make it happen. All right. Greta DeMeo, the executive director of the PATH Foundation. Thank you so much for taking the time. Good conversation. I will let everyone know the weekend that I pick, the date. Of course, I have to get my Closer Look producers to agree as well, but they don't know this because I just made it up. And we will all converge on a path, a trail. Is that okay? Sounds great. (laughs) Right. Greta, thank you so much. Best of luck. Another continued success in 30 years. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. I appreciate your time. Support for WABE's news coverage on affordable housing comes from Lowe's Home Improvement, dedicated to improving upward mobility through affordable housing solutions and careers in skilled trades here in the Atlanta area. Learn more at Lowe's.com. A hundred years ago this month, a woman named Sadie Alexander became the first black American to get a Ph.D. in economics. Things, however, did not quite go according to plan from there. No one hired her into a position as an economist. She eventually became a lawyer. I'm Kai Rizdal, Sadie Alexander's legacy next time on Marketplace. This evening at 6.30 on 90.1 WABE. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. And you all already emailing me about a path. I will let you know. A reminder to always let me know your thoughts on today's program or any other program. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. 
And if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, closer look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.